The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Jennifer Grancia was there at the beginning at Barclays when the beginning of ETFs and, and passive indexing really took off on an institutional basis. She was one of the founding members when BlackRock bought iShares from Barclays and and really helped drive broad adoption of uh, passive and and ETFs uh, in the financial community. Today, she is the CEO of Engine Number One, which focuses on the fascinating transitions that are taking place in broad strokes across the economy. There are numerous opportunities in energy and climate and robotics and automation. And her firm helps invest in those spaces. Not quite an activist investor, but she has worked with a number of companies like Exxon and General Motors and Occidental, where the input of engine number one drove significant changes at those companies. They're a long-term investor. They're not a black hat activist where they're looking to buy stock, force an exit of the CEO and sell once the stock pops. Really fascinating story. I found it quite fascinating, and I think you will as well. So with no further ado, my interview with Engine Number One's Jennifer Grancio. Let's start out talking about the early part of your career. I'm really curious how you ended up in BlackRock, but before that, you were working as a consultant. Yes, I think like a lot of people in undergrad, actually ended. I went to Stanford thinking I was going to do genetics and science. Right. Um, did an internship, pivoted, ended up doing international relations. Then as you head towards the end of college, you figure you're going to save the world. I'm going to go work for the World Bank. <laughs> world Bank wants you to take out more student debt and get a master's degree. So like so many other bright-eyed graduates, um, I trooped off to well, you know, one of the traditional professional services professions. Um, the thing that's kind of interesting for me about consulting was this idea that you you almost apprentice with somebody that's senior and you run around and try to help companies with problems. So seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, at the time. <laughs> and, and that's what I went off to do. So how do you go from that? How do you end up at a place like BlackRock? iShare seems to have been almost an accidental business line from them. I'm remembering correctly that was a post-financial crisis Barclays purchase, something along those Exa- lines? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so if you go back, so I management consulting, moved back to California, decided I was going to be a California person, not a New Yorker. No offense to New York, spend a lot Better of time weather, here. Better weather, the geography things, is right? beautiful, sure. And so I went looking for what I thought would be the best asset management business. I focused on, cons- on asset management within the consulting space. Like this idea that somehow if you got portfolio construction and savings right, you help people over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I joined joined what was Barclays at the time. The asset management business of Barclays Bank was this little firm called Barclays Global Investors based in San Francisco. And that was not such a little firm at the time, was it? No, it it was growing very quickly. And that business was an institutional business. So as Mm -hmm. an institutional business, we did indexing. We thought indexing was cool. Um, And the iShares and the ETF idea came from, we just had a fundamental belief it was a better mousetrap. So there's something about an ETF and we could go into that another time. There's something about an ETF that's a better mousetrap than a mutual fund. And so for Barclays Bank, we pitched, here's a great idea. Let's build this ETF business in the US. And it's a way for Barclays to build in the United States. And so we launched the business in 2000. So we launched it right into the dot-com crisis. So from the dot-com crisis to the global financial crisis, what were the circumstances surrounding BlackRock saying to Barclays, yeah, we'll we'll take that little 
worthless business off your hands for a couple of hours. Yeah, and the interesting thing about an ETF business is that it takes a long time to build. And so, to your question, around that time, I mean, going into 2008, Barclays needed cash, and the index business was starting to take off in the form of ETFs, or at least we thought that, but it was still a relatively small business. Um, and so, who were the other people that probably looked at that acquisition? Included other big indexers, uh, big asset managers who weren't sure was indexing going to be a thing or not? Because remember, at the time, ETFs and index were synonymous. But Larry, you know, was more forward-looking. Larry being Larry Fink of BlackRock, who arguably, and I know who Larry is. I just want the audience to know, arguably, the purchase of iShares by BlackRock from Barclays could be one of the great opportunistic distress purchases in the middle of a crisis ever in financials. What is iShares up to now? Like $4 trillion, something insane? Enormous. Yeah. So, And they picked it up for a, a teeny tiny fraction of that. So what was your experience like when BlackRock took over iShares? Yeah, so we we built the iShares business first within Barclays, um, and we were a you know small but mighty team doing ETFs. And the whole idea, remember, of ETFs is to go and to challenge mutual funds and challenge active management. So that that's a big thing to take on. And so as BlackRock worked through the acquisition of all of the BGI business, including iShares, uh, we spent a couple of years then getting to know BlackRock as a little iShares team um, and talking about ETFs and fee-based advice and portfolio construction and all these things that we thought were trends we could take advantage of and use to build the business. Um, but then the business really just got from strength to strength after that acquisition. We came out of the financial crisis, a few rocky years in the ETF industry overall. Uh, Vanguard decided to get into ETFs in a serious way. Um, BlackRock and iShares launched that core series as a com competitive business. So kind of responding to what was going on in the market and the business continued to grow and grow. And then I think from an ETF industry perspective, um, we did some important work on trying to protect the category of ETFs. So we did a lot of work with U.S. regulators, um, European regulators. I ran the business in Europe for a while as well, um, talking about the differences between like, a passive index fund, for example, an mm -hmm. ETF that's got commodity exposure, an ETF that's leveraged or inverse in terms of trying to protect the vehicle and protect the category. And really, since then, there's just been continued explosive growth. In your wildest dreams, did you ever imagine back from the sleepy early days of passive and ETF at Barclays that it would grow up to be just the dominant intellectual force in investing and reach the size it's reached? What is even after this year? BlackRock is something like $8 trillion, $9 trillion in AUM? Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers are huge. I think we did, but maybe that maybe we were naive. But we, our view was it, just, it was it was a trend that was going to happen. And if you could own the trend and if you could accelerate the trend, uh, this was a better way to invest. A better way to invest is to have a low-cost solution at the core of the portfolio and then hire people that are deeply capable to deliver alpha. So I would say we thought it could be big, but you know, it, it's pretty amazing. So you, you talk about accelerating the trend. What exactly do you do to help accelerate that trend? How do you drive acceptance of both ETFs as a wrapper, as opposed to the traditional 40-act mutual funds, and passive versus more traditional stock picking, market timing, active investing? Yeah, I, I think... We, when the industry first started, so going back, you know, 20 years now, the two things were synonymous. But you know, let's let's take those one at a time. So from a passive perspective, the argument we made as an industry selling passive ETFs was you really had to take a look at what the portfolio was doing over time, total cost, total risk exposure, and when you did that, you often found that there was a way to get better long-term performance and cheaper by having some index in a portfolio. So that was the story on indexing. And then we kind of kept driving that into this idea of models. So now, you know, we have there's a model, a huge amount of money, you know, trillions of dollars sit in models in U.S. wealth. What does that mean? It means a big wirehouse or brokerage puts a model together, this much Europe, this much U.S., this much small cap, and then you can use index products to fill all those allocations. And so that was the kind of the 20-year build of how did passive get so big. Um, 
And then ETF as a wrapper, it's just it's just a great way to get the price at the moment if you're buying into the public markets. Number one, um, and number two, it's a great way to manage tax. Where if you buy something now and you sell it in 20 years and the market's gone up, guess what? We all have to pay tax on that. But the kind of annual capital gains gift you get from a lot of mutual funds, it can be managed very astutely in the ETF wrapper. And that's that's great. Like That's great for all investors. M- meaning, if you're a mutual fund owner who's not selling, but somebody else sells and generates a capital gain, that gets spread around to the other exactly. holders, which so even doesn't make any it sense It doesn't make, all. I mean, we, as somebody that's been doing ETFs for a long time, I say it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, because there's another way to do it. And we're, fi- and we're finally seeing that now. We're finally seeing a lot of the big mutual fund companies start converting into ETFs. The flows, even in a down year like 2022, the flows have all been towards passive, towards ETFs, towards low cost. It seems like a much better mousetrap. I think it is. Well, I'm not going to get much of an argument from, <laughs> from you on that. So you mentioned Vanguard. We're talking about BlackRock. Let's talk a little bit about the role of branding in the industry how important is that when you're putting out either a low-cost passive ETF at three or four bips or something more active or thematic on the ETF side? Yeah, I mean, the role of brand is pretty critical. And if you think about in the index business, if you're managing it well, there's not a lot of performance. It's are you tracking the index, yes or no? And so that power of the brand is massive. And my observation in the space is that the average investor, the average retail person that's going out and investing or talking to an advisor, they don't necessarily know one product provider or investor versus another, but they definitely know who they do business with or who they buy from. So Mm -hmm. that retail brokerage brand, their advisory brand has a huge impact on them. So to your question on Vanguard, like Vanguard's a brokerage firm. So you kind of know Vanguard. Vanguard's in your 401k. You've heard of Vanguard. And so for other people that enter the industry, and this is certainly what we did in the iShares business or what we do now at Engine Number 1, is you really have to be clear on who are you and what is your story, because that brand matters a lot. So you mentioned brokerage firms, and Vanguard does 401k brokerage. They do all sorts of, obviously, mutual funds and ETFs. Uh, How do you see some of the bigger custodians and actual brokers like Schwab and Fidelity in terms of ETF developments. We know it's BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street at the top. These guys are no slouches either, are they? No, I mean, I would say if we go back and we look at the history of ETFs and how they've developed, we see State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, uh, BlackRock iShares as very dominant, and they're going to continue to be dominant and passive, period. They're mm-hmm. there. They're big. They're so big now. Um, and we'll come back to this later. I personally think there's some problems with how big they are. Um, but from a ease of buying decision-making perspective, they're big. They're dominant. Uh, the brokerages were late to get in the game. So Fidelity and Schwab got in much later. They didn't. They don't charge fees for those products. And so it makes it harder for them as a kind of a corporate organism to you know, have that be a, a big part of their business. And then what we're very excited about at Engine Number 1 and what you're seeing with the mutual con- fund conversions, the big ones at DFA, at Franklin Templeton, the list goes on, there are many, is that we're now ready to move active funds into the ETF structure. And that, I think, is very exciting. But that's new. That's a very new development. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So let's talk a little bit about engine number one. First, how did you get there from BlackRock? What led that transition? Yeah, so I left BlackRock's very large. I, I wanted to do a little bit more innovation. And I think sometimes the biggest firms are great, but they can't always lead from an innovation or change perspective. Right. Um, so I spent a couple of years, I built an advisory firm um, and took a couple of years to decide, you know, what, what was the next move? And I, I had some great, did some great work with a number of large wealth and RA firms that were going through an M&A or selling themselves process, um, did some work on impact investing, actually led me to Ethic and joined 
the mankind board, uh, mm-hmm. but decided I was I, I was definitely going to be a builder. That there was this opportunity to do something different than traditional mutual fund and passive ETF, uh, and so I started looking for what would be the thing I wanted to build with partners, um, and then I met Chris James. And did you launch engine number one, or did you join him when it was already? Existing. We launched it together, but Chris is going back, you know, before we started the firm. So Chris James is our founder at Engine Number One, and Chris's background is hedge fund and private fund investments. And what he's really known for is he's known for taking an extremely long view on something and doing the work to say where is the opportunity as you go through a huge transformation or transition. So Chris was hard at work on this and wanted to reach into the wealth space. So rather than just doing products that were private and and you could help institutions invest, um, what could we do that was broad and into the wealth space? Um, So I I joined him to collaborate given my background on that side of the business. And the idea of engine number one is just to, to help people benefit from these huge transitions and transformations that are very much not the backwards looking, look, Google and Amazon got great. You know, our portfolios have a lot of growth in tech. Great. There's a lot of money to be made in the energy transition, transportation, agriculture. And so really the idea of the firm is to be able to look forward, find mispricing, and make money as we go through these huge changes. The firm's name is intriguing. Where does engine number one come from? The first firehouse in San Francisco is actually a couple of blocks from our office. Uh Um, And in talking about what we were trying to do, which is maybe it's grandiose, but if you think about it, like capitalism works. And, And what we were agitated about is we saw the market, you have ESG over here, very small. We think old school ESG is not does not work. We have a strong view on that. We can come back uh-huh. to that. Indexing, too many shares are locked up in indexes. Index don't vote their shares. And then maybe most important of all, we're going to need a General Motors and a Ford to actually be able to do this huge transition from internal combustion to battery electric vehicles. And so, you know, actually, the firehouse is the center of the community, right? And if you think about how a community survives, the firehouse is the center. The community takes care of itself. A well-run business really should be as simple as sort of taking care of the environment it's in, being aware of it. And in public markets, that means you also have to be able to adapt and manage through change. So tell us a little bit about the strategies you guys employ. What are your key focuses? How do you deploy capital? Yeah, we, as a business, we run an alts business, and then we run the ETF platform. So if you think about it very simply, these huge ideas about transition and transformation and how to make money are very common across what we do, but Mm -hmm. we have two businesses. And um, the big ideas are these transitions and transformations and how do you take advantage. And so when we look at public companies, we look at every single company and we look at what their path is through time. So I think this is one of the problems with a lot of investment strategies right now as they're looking to short term. Um, And then we build the impact or externality data, we just build it into the financial model, right? Because the data is out there, particularly on governance, particularly on environmental issues. And when we do that, in these sectors that are in transition, let's take energy, for example. If you're an oil and gas company, and you don't account for the emissions that you're dealing with, and you don't decrease them over time, you're going to have a problem. And we saw this when we started building the business, that a lot of these companies were heading towards zero terminal value. So let's take Exxon, for example, where if you take Exxon and Exxon keeps doing long dated fossil fuel projects and has no plan to reduce emissions at any point in time and has no plans to develop a green business, well, that's not very good for Exxon stock when we get to seven or 10 years out. And so we see a lot of these opportunities where like, it's just math. A capitalist system is supposed to have the company govern itself so that it's making money through time. It has a longer duration of business and it has a higher value. And that's the kind of the way that we work in everything that we do. So you mentioned environmental issues and impact. You mentioned governance. This sounds a lot like two-thirds of ESG. Yeah, we think the way people use that label is a little bit problematic. So people often use that label looking backwards. Uh, flesh that out a little yeah, more yeah. because when when I hear someone mention ESG, I typically think of an investor, and for the most part, as we go through this generational wealth transfer, and you do surveys of investors, a husband passed away, the wife tends to be much more empathetic with issues of uh, equality and environmental 
concerns, and the next generation is much more concerned. Uh, so it seems like there is a desire to express those beliefs in their portfolios. Why does that not work with ESG? Yeah, I mean, our, I guess our view on that would be you can always express values in a portfolio. But if you're going to express values in a portfolio, say that I am expressing my values in the portfolio, uh-huh. which is different than the core concept of managing money over time is generally for the, the person that's doing the managing is to be a fiduciary right. and drive good outcomes and strong returns. And for, in general, for the investor is to drive returns over time. Um, and so the way we think about it is really you can do that and... Any business that is going to survive over time has to be sustainable, has to address or basically cover their impacts right after the cost of capital so that they can be profitable over time. Mm-hmm. So instead of thinking ESG means it's values-based, I don't like the company, they're bad, I'm going to screen them out of my portfolio, we don't think that's a great way to manage your core portfolio over time. We think the better way is you simply have to engage with the companies to make sure that their most material impacts, that's financial data, right? That's risk data if you mm-hmm. don't manage your emissions as an oil and gas company. And so let's build that into just investment to make returns, as opposed to the special class, which, you know, it, the values base and ESG tends to kind of infer value over performance, right, or divesting from companies that you don't like. And mm. that's, we don't think that's a great way to invest. So let me push back a little bit on the low carbon strategy. It seems like it's uh, uh, half of the economic equation, because people seem to be approaching entities like ExxonMobil and others, the suppliers of the carbon-based fuel, what is that doing if you're ignoring the other half, the consumers? So every other company that is not a carbon energy producer is likely to be a carbon energy consumer. They're running factories, they're shipping goods, they're having offices. Why focus on one half of the equation and not the other? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the right question. And we focus on both. And so let's take for a minute the energy industry and then the transportation or auto industry. Mm-hmm. That's an example of that kind of handshake or handlock, right? Mm-hmm. So in the case of the car companies, that's consumption. So if we're consumers and we're driving cars, which we still do and people are planning to do in the future, the car company can switch from encouraging the behavior of driving internal combustion engines, which have very high emissions, or the car company can know that the consumer demand is shifting a little bit, and they can build a car that is an awesome battery electric, reasonably priced vehicle, and then they can capture that shift in demand. And that's really good for the car company. So we actually, we 100% believe that this has to primarily be driven on the consumer demand side and on the first piece of that. So if I'm a consumer, I buy a car, you've got to start with the car company. However, if you look at global emissions, you know, 34% of that today comes from the energy companies. So at the same time, in parallel, there's still an opportunity to work with those companies on as battery electric comes up, as fossil fuel comes down, how do those companies make a lot of money nine or 10 years from now as we go through that transition? Explain that 34%, because again, it's that someone's a buyer, someone's a seller, they're not burning 34% of the fossil fuels. They're selling it to consumers That's right. who, are, who are burning it. Like the, there are some low-carbon ETFs. I, I just don't understand. It's why the war on drugs failed. If you're only going to interdict the supply but ignore the demand, you're not going to be successful. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and we think from an investment perspective, if you want to solve this problem on how do you take emissions down, we think that problem can be solved and you can make money by owning the people that are going to win. So you asked before, like, what do we do? What strategies do we run? In the ETF business, our active team, it's it's effectively hedge fund investors. So they're mm-hmm. very concentrated portfolios. We believe we're right. It's a handful of names, like under 30 names today in the portfolio. Um, tickers net Z, so climate transform, climate, Net Z. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that portfolio holds is it holds companies that have emissions. But we believe that the companies in the portfolio are the companies that have the right strategy to, if I'm an energy company, I'm producing energy, there's demand for energy, that's what I do. But I'll tell you my emissions. I'll do methane third-party monitoring. I'll do all the right things so that from a social license to operate perspective, I'm at the top of my peer group. And in all cases, they have a strategy where as fossil fuel demand declines, not today, but in seven, 10 years, they have a strategy to actually make money and still have value. So we're picking 
the top best performing energy companies. We're not saying energy is bad. Energy is essential, and we need that energy in the transition. And the portfolio then also holds the car companies that we think win. So let's talk about a couple of names. Mm-hmm. So a couple of energy names from NetZ and a couple of car companies from that sea. Yeah, and so one of the names we had in the portfolio, which is actually so highly valued, it goes in and out depending on if it's overvalued, it's an right. active fund, um, is Occidental and Oxy. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of they were really the leader in the space. So they had started to develop greener businesses so that as fossil use comes down, they have another business and they're competitive. That's great for long-term value of the company. What, um, what are their green businesses? Things like solar and wind or... They have a range of things that they do in that space, but think of it as committing early to find mm-hmm. ways to make money, having people on staff, on the board that know how to run green businesses. Mm-hmm. And then from a um, from an emissions perspective, also they were very early on telling us, being very transparent on scope one and two, and agreeing to oil, gas, methane partnership emissions, which third-party monitoring of emissions, Mm -hmm. which we think is critical because, again, methane emissions leaking, that's probably the biggest thing. Especially with natural gas, but with pretty any any form of carbon capture, your uh, carbon um, uh, removal from the ground, that's a big risk. Methane is even worse than CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's right. And that's some of the active ownership work we did in that portfolio where Conoco and Devon are companies that we worked with to join the methane third-party verification partnership this past summer. And that's when we talk about engine number one as active owners. It's not always you know, the black hat activist. We actually haven't done that other than Exxon. But the ability to really understand their business and go in and work with them on actually having the methane verified is a, is a big deal. Because then people understand what you're doing in that part of the business. And it gives you license to operate. Because we need, we need that energy source. What are the car companies that are in Net Z? Um, General Motors is in Net Z. Mm-hmm. Ford has been. It goes in and out of the portfolio based on how they're doing managing some of their supply chain constraint mm-hmm. issues. And then um, Tesla's in the portfolio, but mm-hmm. GM's at a much larger weight than Tesla. And then Tesla went out of the portfolio for governance reasons. Because, give of me Twitter, more specific. Because of Twitter. So if you think about, so the way that we manage that portfolio, basically what Net Z is, is you're holding some of the biggest emitters, and you're holding this 1.8 metric tons of emissions a year. So not low carbon, high carbon. And then what we expect is that those companies are going to take that number down to less than half within a decade. And so if you care about impact or sustainability, yeah, that's great. That's a huge win. You're holding the companies, watching them. They're taking emissions down. But if you want to make money, you're holding the companies that are providing energy, but doing it in a way that they have a social license to operate. And then, so to come back to your Tesla example, all of this starts with governance. And so if a public company is going to make money over years and years, it's all about governance. And do you understand your markets? Do you understand how things change? And so if you're running Tesla, and you have a huge job to do in terms of scaling that business, uh, but you're also doing other things at the same time and saying you don't have time to run Tesla, well, that's kind of a governance issue. So when I look at the acquisition of Twitter, which started out as a lark, $44 billion, the market drops, wild overpayment, the bigger issue is if you think about who's Tesla buyers, they seem to not be the people who Elon is playing to on Twitter. And in fact, as much as there are a lot of fanboys, and I think you have to give Elon full credit for moving the entire auto industry to EVs, I think all the legacy makers looked at him and said, we can't let Elon do to us what Bezos did to the book industry and the booksellers and a dozen other industries. But it seems like he's alienating that core middle left all those uh, liberals we're going to own on Twitter, he seems to be chasing away a lot of his future buyers of Teslas. He may be. That's good news for GM, though. So uh-huh. we're okay. We're covered on that one. You don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and to say nothing about valuation issues and and other assorted things, I'm assuming right. this isn't strictly a, a, an ESG checklist. You look Not at, at all. the usual. Yeah, we, we look at the usual things, and that that's maybe our main point, which is that people people get in our industry in particular, they get stuck in old frameworks, right? An ETF is an index fund. Uh, an activist is somebody that comes in short term and fires a CEO. Uh, so I think we need to be careful of those kind of short ways and shorthand ways of thinking in investments. Our point of view is that 
there's a lot of data available now. We have a huge amount of data. Take the climate and environmental related issues. We have a lot of data on carbon, and we can estimate carbon prices. And so in a basic fundamental financial model, you can start with your old traditional financial model, but you can add in, and we do this, we can add in the monetization of those emissions. And then as you build out your financial model, you can look at how the company reduces them over time. And we just see, we see those as purely financial metrics, right? That those a large, large externality for a company is a risk or financial measure. It's not some separate ESG dot bubble rating system. It's just, it's their numbers, it's math. It should go into the long-term valuation of the business. Hmm. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk about the Exxon situation. You accumulated a relatively small number of shares and then reached out to management Tell us about the process and how they reacted to your overtures. Yeah, so from a team perspective, we we started by making an economic case. So we did the work on here's what we would do differently, here's how we think the value of the business would be higher if we did this. And these suggestions on what we would do differently included disclosure of emissions, it included um, better capital allocation decisions between this sort of short-term energy transition period. And we don't know when it's going to be, thanks to you know Putin in the Ukraine, longer right. than we thought a year ago, but right. at some point. We're going to start to really pivot into an energy transition, and so what? What is? What's your best thinking, Exxon, as a company, on what your business looks like and your capability at a board level to extend the duration of the business, do things that may be renewable or whatever they may be? What is it that you can do that's in that area? Um, and so those were the things that we requested. They were receptive to that. They were not receptive <laughs> to that, but those are the things that we re- requested, which is usually how these things start. Uh huh. So. 0.02% of outstanding shares doesn't exactly put the fear of God into them. Why a toe in the water and not a more substantial stake? Exxon, going back to when we started the proxy campaign. They were giant. Right? They were giant, but also they were a giant in terms of the big asset managers had not been able to get them to pivot from a governance perspective. So hmm. there were known concerns about governance. A lot of the big investors take a, um, a slower approach to work with management, not cause too much change, request changes, um, and there just hadn't been any progress in this case. So we were able to have conversations, and the team did a huge amount of work with investors and passive investors and active investors walking through our economic case. If these things happen, better governance, better economic performance. And that, we think, is what allowed us to rally support. And as we were rallying support, um, as you as you see in this situation, I'm sure Exxon was talking to some of those investors as well. And so as we went through the campaign process, we saw some of these changes on changes in capital allocation decisions, um, an intention to launch a green business. So some of these changes started even before the proxy vote where new directors were direct elected onto the board. So we talk a lot about specific companies. How do you look at the macro environment and geopolitics? You, you mentioned Putin's invasion, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Arguably, that's going to accelerate the greening of Europe in particular and the move to alternative energy sources not dependent on Russia, which is all carbon. Yeah, and, and I think this to some extent you can't control what is the moment in time where the energy transition happens, right? right However, no, <laughs> right? Aren't we more or less in the midst of this today? We're in the I, we are in the transition, absolutely. Uh, but we think that if you wanted to not use fossil or carbon intensive now, you, it, it wouldn't possibly work. We're not right. ready to be transitioned. We are in the transition. Um, and so the way we think about it is pe- we have to be very savvy about where do you have a brown business? Where can that brown business um, be gray? Where does it start to use green techniques? Natural gas is a great example. We need natural gas. So how do you move natural gas in a way where you're looking at methane, you don't have methane leaks, you're using green energy and electric sources to process the natural gas. There are a lot of things we can do even while we're using fossil 
to be cleaner and to put the people that are cleaner and doing fossil in a better position to sell versus their competitor because we are seeing these changes and we do have a lot of people looking at carbon footprint as they're buying or investing in companies. So my colleague Matt Levine mentioned your win and now says, when they see you coming, you are no longer presenting as a scrappy small startup. You're bringing some receipts to the table. Hey, Exxon knuckled under, now let's you and I have a conversation. How has that changed since that win? Yeah, it, we really started with, we started with Exxon effectively. And so I wouldn't say we had um, it was we the next day it was a sea change in a positive way. I would say <laughs> it's complicated because after you've done that, the board and the CEO are a little bit worried about what our intentions are. Um, and it takes time to build those relationships. And Chris does a lot of this work directly with the CEOs and the companies that are in the portfolios. Um, and it takes time to build trust, but our relationship with them is you know, basically having modeled their business ourselves and modeled all their competitor businesses and have gone kind of up and down the supply chains. And once we get to know each other, we're giving them what they find is actually some very helpful point of view on if I look at your business, I think this you know consumer demand is going to flip sooner, you're going to miss it. Or what's you know how organized are you on supply chain? What are your bottlenecks? And so it's become really very constructive with a lot of the companies that we work with. It sounds like your early training in the consultant world, it wasn't for naught. This is almost a hybrid between activist investing and consultants. And just investing, right? High quality investing means you really have to understand um, what a company's strategy is and what the what are the what are the bottlenecks, what are the places where they may miss. If you understand those, you can make those faster, shorter, better, less risk. Then that's really positive for being more sure that the company increases in value. So let's talk a little bit about your toolbox. You mentioned proxy voting. You mentioned modeling. What else does Engine Number One bring to the table as ways to get management to see the world from your perspective. Yeah, and part of it is the the data science work that we do around the sizing of emissions, comparative emissions, monetization of emissions. So we call that our total value approach to looking at the externalities of these companies. So we bring that. Um, we've done the modeling, all the fundamental work that we do. And then this very active engagement where we want to stay engaged. And if there's something it's part of where the alts business came from, if there's something in the private markets that could work differently to help a big public company move can we make connections? Can we help that move along? And then proxy voting is important. So most of what we do is this kind of very intense, active engagement. And we're active owners of the company, not always an activist in the traditional meaning. Um, we also launched an index product. So you know, our view is that you really have to hold these companies if you want to own the winners over time. And if you want to drive change, you also have to hold the companies. You can't divest. Um, and we see a problem in the dominance of the current index providers is that they're big and it's complicated to vote shares because you have people on different sides of every issue. So we, while we're at it, put a new index product out in the market. The ticker is vote, which is pretty simple. It's literally an index. We vote the shares in line with out economic outcomes, and we post them as soon as we vote. So hmm. a little option for people that still want to use index instead of active. That's really interesting. We've talked about Exxon so far and Tesla and Ford. Tell us about your involvement in General Motors. What attracted you to the company and what sort of uh, positioning do you have with it? Yeah, it's General Motors. And General Motors, it's going to take some time, right? So General Motors is, has been in the portfolio since we launched um, since we launched NetZ, and still is, and has stayed there. And when we work with General Motors, it's a lot of our work has been about how do we accelerate the transition to battery electric vehicles for them as a manufacturer? And not for a, an ideological reason, purely because we think the consumer demand is shifting more quickly. That's where the market right. is That's going. Where the That's market where the is consumer going. demand and is And so moving. this is, again, this is an economic argument for us and working with General Motors that the faster you get to all battery electric, which means you need to build the battery plants, you need to build them bigger, you need to build them faster, you need supply agreements locked up for the rare metals, and then you need to work on bringing the cost of batteries down. Because as the, all of that happens, GM makes eight to nine million cars a year. And so if those cars are all battery electric vehicles uh, and the battery cost comes down, you know what's Tesla's multiple? Right? They can have the opportunity to go from where the GM multiple is today, which is very low, very depressed value stock, all the way up 
to what producing BEVs at scale is going to look like. Hmm. And that's a huge value creation opportunity. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's talk about what's going on in the in the world of ESG and greenwashing and wokeism. There's so many things happening here, and I think people don't really use these buzzwords appropriately. Let's start out with greenwashing. Tell us your view of it and why it's problematic. Well, I think if you could do everything from scratch, I get this a lot from uh, people that run large asset management companies. You're like, gosh, I wish I wish I could just start everything from scratch again in this environment. So yeah, I think the reality is if you're running a strategy and you, you don't care or you don't have risk metrics on, let's say, the environment in your strategy, mm-hmm. it's very hard to fit them on top. And I think a lot of people get caught in that from a greenwashing perspective. So if what we what we do is we start from scratch we think about these material impact things as financial data and it's just part of our process and so there's no greenwashing there um, but for people that were investing in something and now want to take advantage of a, mo- a moment in time or people that are investing and actually don't really understand how environmental risks factor into the portfolio i do think that you just have to take a time out and and go back to basics and better articulate what the strategy is and what you're actually doing to the market. And if it's not a green strategy, you, you kind of have to say that. It, it seems like a lot of this is just spin be- on the hot buzzword of the day. Well, a lot of our society right now is spin <laughs> on the buzzword of the day. So I think we need to be very careful about that when it comes to investing. So let's talk about wokeism. You're describing ESG as sort of a risk management tool to filter out certain potential problems down the road. But if I pick up the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post and flip to the editorial section, all I hear is woke capitalism and this is what Disney's doing and this is what Apple's doing and this is what Nike's doing. Is this really woke capitalism? Tell us what's happening in that space. Yeah, I think we have to remember what capitalism is. And and then I'm not sure what we mean by woke, which is part of the problem. So capitalism is meant to be you in public markets can, you know, Put that in the private markets as well. It's meant to be you have a set of financial shareholders, you have other stakeholders, you're making money for the shareholders over time. That's that's the definition of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to make money for shareholders, financial shareholders over time if you don't treat your workers well or you destroy the community in which you live. That's just kind of good business or doing business the right way. I think we sometimes get confused when we talk about values. Um, or practices, and you can't link it directly back to financial returns. So listen, when it comes to climate, we feel like we can do a pretty good job with the data out there to link how a company handles climate and environment with how they perform as a stock over time. You know, there's not enough data on the social side. The research is spotty. I really hope there's better data. I hope the research gets better. I hope we have causality there. But I think as investors, we have to be careful where we're talking about um, if the company has less emissions, they get credit for trying to do the right thing, and the stock price goes up. That's capitalism, Um, where from a values-based perspective, we want to ask a company to do something that's a little bit different. So I, I think that distinction is really important. And there's pretty robust data on governance. If yes, if you indeed. if you elevate women to senior members, uh, if you have people on your board uh, that are diverse, those companies historically have outperformed the companies that have not. Yeah, and and let's talk the board for a minute is another one that's very hard to reduce into one stat. So if you think about all the research that's been done on boards, and at Engine Number One, we do a lot of work with academics. So we're always trying to look for these places where we've got data and causality, and we can link it to economic outcomes. Um, and when it comes to boards, what a lot of the research would tell us is if a board is deeply non-diverse, the first if you had one diverse person or thinker they may actually have worse performance. But if a board starts to have multiple varieties of diversity and the board listens to the diverse points of view, 
those are the boards where we get the real outperformance. And then remember, it's a board. So it's not just diversity of thought. It has to be diversity of capability, because as these companies go through change, you know, you need other CEOs that have been successful through change. You need, you know, if you're, if you're an old school media company, you need people on the board that are successful for, with where the puck is going. So I think we have to look for both of those kinds of diversity and boards that listen to each other, have diversity, and have that important diversity of capability. Yeah, absolutely, those are going to be the highest performing ones. So we talked about Exxon. We talked about GM and Ford and Tesla. What other companies are you looking at as being on the cutting edge of change to take advantage of this transitional moment. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're excited about, I can't talk about the product because we're not through the SEC with it right. yet, although it's in filing. Uh, but from a, a theme perspective, we're super excited for, for the US. From a US competitiveness perspective, what happened during COVID is supply chains were too global, too fragile, and they broke. And so what we're, we're already seeing, and we're going to see a lot more of this in the next few years, is we're seeing a huge resurgence of manufacturing jobs in the U.S., and it's going to be great for a lot of these communities. So we see um, semiconductor plants, we see battery plants, Michigan, Tennessee, Kentucky, Arizona, Arizona big chip. Texas, exactly. So it's happening already. There's a huge increase in manufacturing. And then as that happens, if you build a manufacturing plant, there's a huge job multiplier. You have people come in to build the plant, then people work in the plant, then people work to move goods in and out of a plant. Um, and we're going to see a huge, a huge growth, we believe, in railroads. So huh. if you're going to increase manufacturing in the, US, the North America, guess what? You don't need to ship things overseas. You need better, more effective um, railroad continued to strengthen the lines and the movement of goods around the U.S. Um, and then automation. So good and bad is we have, you know, we have less, we have less birth rate and less people coming to the U.S. And we're going to have a huge number of quality jobs. And so companies like Rockwell Automation that high quality jobs in brand new factories with automation to assist in the manufacturing. It's going to be pretty awesome from an investment theme perspective. So Rockwell just isn't terrifying us with YouTube videos of robots that are coming to kill all no, of us. The, the, the high quality worker, the high quality blue collar, if you will, workers and all these new plants, they're not mm -hmm. going to be enough of them and they're going to be happy the robots are there to help them. Really quite interesting. So let's talk a little bit about some of the political pushback to the sort of investing you do. Uh, maybe Florida is the best example. Passing laws to punish a specific company, Disney, who objected to Florida's uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, sort of um, legislation. Uh, is the environment changing for this sort of um, proxy voting and criticism and working with companies? Or is Florida just Florida and, you know, it's kind of a one-off? Um, listen, I, th I think companies, companies have consumers. And so if I'm a company, if I'm Disney and I have consumers and I feel like my company needs to stand for something because it allows me to serve my consumers and co my consumers to say my brand has value, that's something that Disney's going to have to push for. So I think, first of all, in, when it comes to public companies, some of them have one audience, some of them have another audience, and they may need to behave in ways to make their audience feel good so they can be in business and sell their product. Um, I think separately, if we talk about proxy voting, successful proxy votes should be economic. So back to the kind of fiduciary concept we were talking about earlier. So if a proxy vote says, you know, can you please disclose more information about your workforce that's helpful to investors? Great, that often makes sense to us. If the proxy vote says, I don't like this thing you do, please don't do it, but there's no economic causality, right. I think it's hard for that to be a proxy voting issue versus a values-based conversation with the company. So our belief is proxy votes matter, and we should all use our vote, but proxy voting is a tool to drive kind of long-term economic performance with companies. Sometimes there are just value-based issues that, that shouldn't be tackled through proxy votes. Huh. I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, tell us about your early mentors who helped to shape your career. Yeah, I. it's funny. I, I don't have a lot of mentors where it was that one guiding light. I found that I picked up little bits and pieces from different people. So um, Condi Rice was a provost when I was at Stanford. Really? And so it was that inspiration that sort of sent me off down the international relations path. There was just a level of um, 
a smarts and confidence that mm. I really appreciated that I picked up from her. Um, and then a, a professor in business school who said, women can definitely have it all, but you're kidding yourself if you think you can have it all at the same time. So like <laughs> pace yourself, like go, go after it, but pace yourself. You can't literally do it all at the same time, which is good advice. And then I think there are a lot of people for me where I learned one or two lessons from different people. And now I do a lot of mentoring of other people. And that, that is my overarching suggestion on this is you got to ask a lot of questions and you don't always have to have a lifetime relationship with everyone, but get any, any nugget you can get and run with it. I like it. <laughs> Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading currently? So um, I, Maya Angelou is actually a favorite of mine. I find it relaxing and, and out of my, you know, it's so different than what I do every day and kind of American and lyrical. Um, Harry Potter. We have a younger, one of our kids is younger, so working our way through Harry Potter. And then um, the Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Acting Slow. Mm -hmm. I read that last year. I like that a lot because it's, you got to remember sometimes how our brains work. And the fact that we rush to things and we shortcut and we group things. And so I find that helpful sometimes in just being calm about how else could we solve a problem or why is somebody reacting the way that they do. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career in either impact, ESG, activist, whatever we want to call it, type investing or ETF and passive investing? Well, first, I'd say those are great areas to go into. You should go into it and definitely um, learn how to invest. Learn how to be an investor. Don't stick to one fad or one mousetrap. If you can learn how to be an investor or how investors think, um, that will serve you so well in our business. Um, and I guess to new in, to new graduates, I would say don't, don't give up hope. It's going to be a bad job market. <laughs> So take those internships, be a little bit scrappy, and just learn from whatever that first job is two years in, uh, because you'll pick up a phenomenal amount of information. And if it's not what you love, great, then go do something else after it. But it's it's a great it's a great place to build a career. Huh. Really interesting. And our final question: What do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew thirty or so years ago? I think it's that the overall portfolio construction matters, right? So. So as an investor, thinking about when you build, like when we build at Engine Number 1, we build products where we put strategies out into the market. Um, the more you can make them balanced and with some duration, so if somebody puts something in the portfolio, they sort of understand what it's going to do and what the return stream looks like and what the risk looks like as we're investing and then selling to other people. I think that ability to, to build products that are durable and it's clear what they do is really, really important. It lets you build your brand, it lets you build trust hmm. with really, the investors. Really, really interesting. Thank you, Jennifer, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Jennifer Grancio. She is the CEO of Engine Number One. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of our previous 450 interviews. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts at Podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team who helps put these conversations together each week. Sarah Livesey is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Sean Russo is my head of research. Paris Wald is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.